Welcome to Africa Forward, a podcast from Africa 50 produced by FP Studios. This series is dedicated to looking at how countries in Africa are building a new future for the continent by bolstering its infrastructure. I'm Aisha Sassane. And I'm Carol Pino. Today we want to talk about one of the most important aspects of infrastructure, how to pay for it. Infrastructure deals are massive often costing tens of millions to multiple billions of dollars. It's estimated that Africa needs as much as $170 billion a year for infrastructure to support the growth it needs. In 2018, for the first time, financing topped $100 billion. But that still leaves a significant shortfall. Over the past decade, foreign investors have poured billions of dollars into Africa, and there's increasing global interest. But financing infrastructure is often complicated, and the risk is not always well understood. Later in the show, our roundtable will feature leaders from some of Africa's top infrastructure financing institutions. They're finding creative solutions for getting projects funded and completed. But first, Dr. Kimwumi Edesina, president of the African Development Bank, the AFDB, Africa's foremost development finance institution, has made what he calls the high fives as priority for the bank energy, food security, industrialization, integration, and overall improvement of quality of life for Africans. He recently gave an update on how much the continent has advanced on these crucial goals. Over the past five years, the bank has delivered impressive results on these high fives. 18 million people with access to electricity. 141 people had access to improved agricultural technologies for food security. 15 million people with access to finance from private investments. 101 million people with access to improved transport from infrastructure. And 60 million people with access to water and sanitation. We've achieved collectively impressive results. The bank's high five programs have impacted 335 million people. While these big numbers are remarkable, sometimes it can be hard to grasp what they actually mean for people on the ground and how Africans feel about their future. It turns out that despite the challenges ahead, there is great optimism throughout the continent, especially among younger Africans which is important since the median age on the continent is under 20. According to a 2020 African Youth Survey conducted by the Ishikawits Family Foundation, African youth are optimistic about the future. 82% of all respondents believe that their standard of living will improve in the next two years. The African Union has what they call a blueprint and master plan for transforming Africa into the powerhouse of the future. It's called Agenda 2063, the Africa we want, and infrastructure is a big part of that plan. If infrastructure is so crucial, why does it take so long to get deals done? It's often assumed the challenge is not having enough financing. But experts say the issue isn't a shortage of capital. It's a shortage of what's called bankable deals. Simply put, a bankable deal means investors know if they put money in, there's a reasonable expectation they will get their money out. The best way to earn that expectation is a track record built over time. 
But as a newer frontier market, a long track record is what Africa doesn't have. One of the first things that I noticed is that the party that would be purchasing the power is a very newly formed entity, which had zero credit history. And from a lender's perspective, completely just a a no-go. That's Hoda Mustafa. Currently, she's the head of Sub-Saharan Africa Regional Office at the Multilateral Investment Guarantee Agency, or MEGA. They're part of the World Bank Group that does political risk insurance. Ten years ago, she was senior counsel in MEGA's legal department. She recalls being asked to look at a potential power plant deal in Nigeria and highlight any red flags for bankability. And um, I remember looking at the kind of background and thinking, wow, this is... This is going to take a while. This is going to be a doozy. That deal was Azura Edo, which is the first large privately financed independent power plant in Nigeria. Energy infrastructure can transform a nation, enabling manufacturing, creating jobs, powering ICT, and more. Azura Edo contributes significantly to that, producing about 10% of the electricity on Nigeria's national grid. But this is the story of Azura Edo before it generated even one megawatt of electricity. In fact, before they even broke ground. This is the story of the road to bankability and everything that happens right up to financial close. That day when everyone signs on the dotted line and the deal becomes a reality. People often assume infrastructure is impersonal, even kind of boring. But hearing from project developers, you start seeing these stories are full of twists and turns, cliffhangers, and endings that are anything but certain. Part of the difficulty in infrastructure deals, not just in Africa but anywhere in the world, is that you have to do everything before you even break ground. In the case of Azura Edo, the project developers needed to raise almost a billion dollars in capital. But to get that financing, Every partnership, contract, and contingency plan for anything that could possibly go wrong, all of this had to be in place up front. David Ladibo, the former managing director of Azura Edo, offers a glimpse into what it's like to develop these massive infrastructure deals. It's a bit like you have to put all the agreements together and then jam them into a box, lock the box, and press the button. And if you're not able to squeeze it in and press the go button then you'll find that you're hitting the expiry dates on all of your contracts. And then you've got to run around and try and put them back together again. When Azura Edo incorporated in 2010, the Nigerian power sector from top to bottom was entirely government-owned. Even the government acknowledged it was challenging. And so they began working on plans to privatize the sector. Privatization is usually done incrementally. In Nigeria, the power sector had become so paralyzed that there were calls for a much bolder privatization plan. Many believed that there would have to be a big bang or there would be no bang at all, says Ladibo. We took a bet on this happening and we said, you know, Nigeria cannot remain in a state of electricity impoverishment that it has been in for so many decades. And that's going to happen sooner rather than later. So in that intervening period, we did what all um, typical developers of power generating plants do, which is we put together the set of contracts which are necessary um, to acquire the financing and then also to um, operate and maintain the plant. Finally, in 2013, Nigeria's power sector had a big breakthrough with the government privatizing all 11 distribution companies and the bulk of power generating plants. 
Ladibo's hunch had paid off. But remember, that was three years of project development with no guarantee of success. Alan Muir became the CEO of Azura Edo Holding Company in 2018, but he'd also been involved with the project for many years prior. He remembers the mountain of challenges they faced. There's a whole suite of documents you need uh, from grid uh, contracts to gas contracts to PPAs, power purchase agreement contracts. Um, there's a whole host of um, direct agreements, um, and there was no formal contract structure really in place which could be used. It wasn't a five-minute process by any means. It was years, not weeks or months. When it comes to making sure an infrastructure deal will work, there's no margin for error. If in the future Azura Edo finds one of their partnerships it negotiated is untenable, it can't just unplug from the Nigerian power grid and go find another. With infrastructure deals, once the deal is signed, Everything is baked in, and it's not easy to change. And if you put that suite of documentation together well, you'll have a successful project. If you put that suite of documentation together badly or sloppily, you'll guarantee failure. And there's no way that you can make it up later, further down the line. Yeah, you're a single asset power plant. You can't just go and sell to more customers. You can't. You've got one power plant with a fixed capacity of output and a fixed tariff for the next 20 years. Let's take a minute to understand what Ladibo means by a suite of documents. This isn't just a few manila folders on a desk. It's reams and reams of agreements, contracts, reports, and more. It's every single detail of this huge project. But within these documents is all the information needed to show whether a deal will be bankable. For example, the construction contract will show how long the company has to build the plant. But the contract also needs to have penalties if it's delayed, so there is an incentive to finish on time. Azura Edo's contractor had a penalty of $300,000 per day, which is a pretty hefty incentive. So their construction agreement was seen as bankable. They ticked that box. One of the most critical boxes to check was a bankable deal for fuel supply. Ladibo explains what investors and creditors look for. If this plant doesn't get gas, it can't generate power, and it won't get paid, and then I'm not going to get, my interest isn't going to be paid, and my principal's not going to get paid. So I need to be damn sure that my gas supplier is actually going to deliver the gas. This is such a crucial part of being able to operate a power plant and keep it running for decades. So part of the due diligence is looking at independent reports on gas reserves below ground, as well as anything else that could impact the ability to supply fuel to that plant. The contracts with Azura Edo's fuel supplier are considered bankable, another step ahead. So I'm making progress here. So now we're going to turn to the big one. Do I have a bankable power purchase agreement? Now let's say construction goes to plan. Fuel is being supplied, the turbines are humming along, electricity is being generated, everything is good. But the next step is transmission, shooting it out over high-voltage utility power lines. The entire transmission system is owned by the government, and this is where Azura Edo gets paid. The government buys their electricity to transmit it throughout the country. So what happens if something goes wrong with the lines or the transformers fail? The government can no longer transmit your electricity, so do they still have to pay? They do if you have a power purchase agreement with a take-or-pay provision included. Without one, as long as those transformers are offline, the power plant could sit idle, even for years, 
with no alternative source of income. A power purchase agreement says that as long as the power plant is available to produce electricity, it will be paid for the capacity that it could produce, whether the government takes that electricity or not. What we say to the government is we will take construction risk and we'll take operation risk and we'll also bring all the capital. So you don't have to dip into your pocket and find nearly a billion dollars to build this plant. We'll do that. And if we screw up, that's our headache. But if we actually build this thing and operate it and produce the electrons which you're buying, then you need to pay us. The company that buys Azura Edo's electricity is the Nigeria Bulk Electricity Trading Company. But this was a new company set up by the government during that aggressive privatization program. While it's government-owned, it's still a new company with no track record. The only way to satisfy lenders and creditors would be a sovereign guarantee. Muir explains why financiers need that guarantee. Without that, they can't get political risk insurance. So that guarantee is critical. Sounds pretty simple. But governments are reluctant to give guarantees, partly because for emerging markets, those guarantees can be considered a contingent liability on a balance sheet. That's a liability that might happen, but it still makes it harder for the country to borrow. The Minister of Finance at the time was Ngozi Okonji-Iwala. If that name sounds familiar, it's because she was just named the Director General of the World Trade Organization. In other words, Nigeria brought some serious firepower to the table. The solution was what's called a put-call option. These agreements had been used elsewhere, but not in Africa. The agreement says that if the contract is terminated because the government fails to pay, they would have to make a huge payout to the project, investors and creditors, but they would get the asset in return. They might have to pay out a huge sum, but they would now own the power plant. For Nigeria, what could have been seen as a liability on their balance sheet is now being offset by a potential asset, so there's no effect on the country's ability to borrow. That was the guarantee needed to make the project bankable. It was now November 2014, four years of grueling work, but all the documentation and financing agreements were signed and the project was considered bankable. In the end, there were 15 lenders, each with their own regulations and standards. Even for a big infrastructure project, that's a lot. But this was the first major power deal in Nigeria after the big privatization program, so investors were reluctant to go big. We could raise all the money that we needed to raise. It was simply a question of how many people would we need to bring the, to the table. Azura Ada was just about ready to close and even send their construction contractor on site, but not so fast. There were delays in getting signatures on some minor documents. Unfortunately, in major projects like these, contracts have expiration dates, so companies aren't indefinitely obligated to terms. Those delays meant Azura Edo's contracts had expired. This is one of the points in project development when years of hard work can suddenly be derailed. Hoda Mustafa from MEGA remembers how hard Ladibo and his team had to work to bring the deal to fruition. He managed to corral all of the stakeholders together um, and make it happen. But definitely, I would not say this was a matter of luck or the stars aligning. It was a matter of incredibly, um, incredible dedication and hard work. 
It took several months to get all the documents in order again, and by December 2015, it finally happened. They reached financial close. The project would go forward. By January, they were able to break ground. The Azura Ada plant was built eight months ahead of schedule, and today it's producing much-needed electricity for Nigeria. In the meantime, that innovative put-call option agreement that Nigeria pioneered is now being used in Ghana, and several others are looking at using it in the future. As you can see, making a project bankable means proving to investors and financiers that you've got them covered every step of the way, from dealing with contractors to purchasers to the government. But even figuring that out, there's still a problem that financiers in Africa have to contend with, the gap between perceived and actual risk. Admittedly, there remain places in Africa where government stability still poses a threat to getting a project done. But too often, the entire continent is unfairly painted with a broad brush of being too risky. Yet African leaders and private developers are finding a great way to change minds, build a robust portfolio of success. It's a matter of showing, not telling, and it's already starting to move the dial. My co-host Carol Pino has more on risk and how African institutions and others are de-risking projects in order to dramatically change the infrastructure landscape. Africa offers huge opportunities, and the region has one of the highest rates of return on direct investment in the world. Capital usually goes to where profits are highest. So why isn't money flooding into Africa? Paul Hanks, CEO of Symbian Power and chairman of Invest Africa, a leading association of U.S. businesses investing in Africa, recalls what he hears when he talks to potential investors. As soon as you start talking about investing in Africa, the first thing they ask about is the returns. And then the second thing they ask about, but what about the risk? And all people seem to think about is what they've seen at the movies or on television reports. And they really can't articulate um, what the true risks are. You know, it's a perceived risk versus uh, actual risk. Samila Zibairu, CEO of Africa Finance Corporation, the AFC, expresses frustration with what he sees as an entrenched negative narrative on Africa. The African world expects is one of poverty, political instability, um, and all kinds of you know, things. So it, when you are talking about real things, they don't even want to listen. How do we present facts to counter that? Hink says at times investor perceptions simply defy logic. There was a, an American fund manager. He was really quite down on Africa. So I said to him, okay, so tell me the places that you're invested. And the first was Russia. And I said, are you kidding me? I mean, it's, it's, it, there's no comparison about all sorts of risks in Russia, and you won't go to Africa. According to a recent study by Moody's, Africa has one of the lowest project default rates in the world, lower than the U.S., significantly less than Asia, and less than half the default rate in Latin America. Africa is often looked at as one market, just like Asia or Europe. But the risk profile of Germany is considerably different than Greece. The same is true for Africa's 50-plus countries. While there may be a gap between perceived and real risk, Zubairu notes that doesn't mean Africa is risk-free. There will be conflicts. 
there will be disputes, there will be challenges, there will be instances where the parties can't do what they say. The risk exists, but we can manage the risk. One major change is the rise of Africa's own institutions, including a number of development finance institutions like the African Development Bank, Africsim Bank, AFC, and Africa 50. These are powerful institutions with vast resources and trusted relationships with governments. For Hinks, who has invested in Africa for 40 years, engaging with them is the first step in risk mitigation. They basically have more leverage. When you have them on board and you have a problem on your project, they will weigh in and they will help you get it resolved. For investors, a wide gap between perceptions and reality is actually a boon. The returns are higher and it keeps the competition out. Zubairu recalls asking a client who is quite happy with his investment why he didn't tell others about Africa as an investment destination. He said because they now have significant competition. For Africa, that narrative gap and investor silence has a serious cost. We pay a prejudice premium, you know, uh, and we pay it in several ways. Our interest rates are always higher. We pay higher insurance premiums here than what other people pay, even though the default rate is really not as high. Hubert Danso, chairman of Africa Investor Group, notes that there are investors who have done several deals in the same country with no default and yet the country still has to pay a higher cost to attract investment. For Danso, investor silence is a moral issue. Until people make enough of a fuss about it, we will continue to pay a, an exorbitant premium for our capital, for our, for our infrastructure. It's just inequitable, really inequitable. What's the solution? There are several. One solution is to look to one of Africa's biggest resources, its diaspora. Almaz Nagash, executive director of the African Diaspora Network, says Africa's diaspora know the market. So there's no gap between the real and perceived risk, and they often want to be part of Africa's future. We do see risk differently, and we love the social return on investment. We do good. We want to make sure that we make an impact. But I also don't mind getting um, a return on my investment. We're looking both at the same time. According to the World Bank, in 2020, the African diaspora sent back nearly $40 billion, which is several times bigger than U.S. foreign aid to Africa, and about the same level as U.S. foreign investment in Africa. Most of those funds go to family members, but Nagash says the diaspora could be tapped for what she calls a force for good. A fraction of the fund we give to our family can go into specific investment to help to uh, African infrastructure. So that means we need to look at holistically an overarching vision to engage the African diaspora. The real wealth that could invest more in infrastructure is African institutional investors, African pension, insurance, and sovereign wealth funds. Many of these are owned by governments. According to the African Development Bank, these funds have assets under management of $1.8 trillion. But less than 2% of those funds are invested in infrastructure. Danzo explains why. Uh, historically, infrastructure investment in Africa uh, was seen to be more of a developmental class and almost the territorial preserve of African governments working with development partners. In other words, deals were primarily structured as debt with low interest rates and long repayment schedules. Institutional investors need higher rates of return and they want to own a piece of the project. 
Danso says deals are increasingly being structured to meet the needs of these institutional investors and that there are numerous benefits to bringing in these investors, not just for raising capital, but also for risk mitigation. So that is quite a significant de-risking approach when you can co-invest with an African institutional investor that is quasi-government, your interests are aligned, everyone's got skin in the game. Um, it, 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 it's, it's a transformative approach. That model is called a public-public partnership, and it's so attractive that several other countries are looking into using it. And now today's roundtable on infrastructure financing. These deals are different. They're complex. They're definitely for long-term investment. And they are big, really big. My co-host Cal Pino has assembled some of Africa's most prominent thinkers and players in infrastructure financing who can help us better understand what's being done to encourage investment, particularly from African sources, how to deal with real and perceived risks, and how to boost investor confidence. My guests for the roundtable are Alain Ebobise, CEO of Africa 50, Achaleke, Chairman of McKinsey's Africa Region, and Ibukun Awusika, Chairman of First Bank Nigeria. Thank you so much for being with us. Alain, let's begin with you. Why does financing for infrastructure matter so much? Infrastructure is a key component to the prosperity and progress of all societies in the world. It powers our homes, businesses, and industries. It brings us clean water. It enables movements of people and goods and fosters trade network within and between regions. It helps us connect with each other through telecommunication. For a continent where over 50% of the population is young, we have no choice but to build very strong foundations for existing and future generations. So the way we design, build, and operate infrastructure will continue to determine our ability to drive economic activity, to provide access to public services, and to preserve natural resources. So that is what it matters. Acha, I, I, I would love to go to you the same question. Um, it's absolutely critical for us to put in place the right infrastructure across the continent. So whether it's in, you know, roads, rail, power, water, we still have, you know, 600 million Africans uh, that don't have access to energy today on the continent, right? But for us to really maintain the strong growth that we need to really sustain and grow economies and empower the 1.3 billion Africans, we desperately need more infrastructure. We need about 2.5% of GDP. That's what we need to spend uh, every year on infrastructure in Africa. We're not there yet. Right. So even though we see, you know, we're getting close to spending 100, we need to spend 150 billion dollars a year. So we need to do more. And it's a critical, critical enabler to help continue to propel our growth. And Ibukun, I would love to hear from you. When you look at the continent, especially when you take a country like Nigeria, with about 69 percent of our population of almost 200 million people being under 40 years old, we have an abundance of entrepreneurial energy on the continent but you need the enabling tools for them to be able to work. If you talk in terms of agriculture, about 60% of what is produced by people waste on their farms because they're not able to get them out effectively. Ellen, can you explain why financing for infrastructure is so different than financing for other ventures? Well, first of all, you need a lot of money 
and those investments are lumpy and the return are made over time. And also, there are a number of risks associated to infrastructure investment. So you need to make sure that you're able to mitigate those risks and deliver bankable projects. The good news is that we know how to do this. The challenge for us is that we need to do more of it and faster. Most investment in infrastructure in Africa have been financed with public money. We need to increase the share of the private sector. And this is possible. It has been done in other places. It will be done in Africa. One of the things that's always surprising is how much money there actually is in Africa. You look at how much there is in sovereign wealth funds, in insurance and pension funds. Acha, I'd love if you can talk us through how to get more of this to stay on the continent, because a lot of this is actually being invested in projects outside of Africa and not really benefiting Africa. You're absolutely right. I mean, if we step back and first look at where does the infrastructure financing in Africa come from today, of that roughly call it $100 billion dollars, about 40% actually comes from African governments. About 30 to 35% comes from our, our bilateral partners. These days, about 20% of that comes from China, and that's very fast growing. And uh, about 5 to 10% comes from the private sector. I think increasingly you're starting to see the pension funds. You see that happening in Nigeria, you see that happening in South Africa, a number of other countries really, you know, putting the mass and the capabilities to bear to support projects. Ibukun, you know, one of the things that happens with infrastructure is that some infrastructure projects are profitable, like a toll road, but others are just for the public good. And so their profit is in social impact, but it's not on the bottom line. Now, you're the chairman of a major bank in Nigeria. How, when you see these kinds of projects, are you looking at a double bottom line or are you just looking at profitability? Well, I mean especially for institutions like ours. We're 126 years old. We're older than my country in terms of its structure. So you don't have a choice but to participate in projects that are for the good of the society, but yet you need a balance between that and your commitment to your stakeholders and the value that you must deliver to your shareholders. So if your cost of uh, funding is high because your interest rates or that you pay to your depositors and all of that cost of money is high on the continent. When you have that kind of cost, you're not going after really long-term projects. But even with that constraint, you would find that collectively the banks have found how to work together as consortium for major viable projects that they consider good for the good of the country, but it must still make economic sense. We've been burnt a few times doing that as well, because you know one of the challenges of um, infrastructure investment, because of the long-term nature, is that you also have the inconsistency of government policy and government commitments, and the changes of governance that can happen within the long-term tenor of such projects. So, that heightens your risk. But as local players, we know how to organize ourselves to mitigate our risk in the best possible way. 
You know, you bring up the the governments, and that's a really important point. And Africa 50, of course, is owned by 20 African governments. Uh, Alan, how is it for you in working with the governments? What we are telling our government shareholders, look, you don't have enough money to close the infrastructure gap. So you have to make sure that you create an enabling environment which is attractive to private investors to enable them to help you, government, to do more with less, which is what the PPPs, the public-private partnerships are. Government will commit a fraction of the resources, sometimes in terms of funding or guarantees, to raise a massive amount of money to fund the entire project, doing more with less. But in order to do so, you need to offer a certain level of predictability to the private sector because infrastructure projects go through several cycles, political cycles, and you need consistency. Uh, you mitigate it sometimes by bringing institutions such as Africa 50 or the World Bank or the African Development Bank to provide political risk mitigation so that we can tell investors, including U.S. investors, that they can come to Africa with structured projects, mitigate some of the risk, making sure that they can actually make money while delivering an impact. Acha, I, I, I would love to go to you about the infrastructure financing gap and that there are ways that can be used to solve this. What are those ways? I think the, the, the number of ways you can do to, solve, to close the gap the question in my mind is how do you position yourself to attract the capital into the country? And that goes back to the enabling environment, that goes back to how the country is seen, that goes back to um, the viability of the project, right? That goes to you know, what kind of incentives you're gonna put in place for the, for the private sector. But I think even more importantly is what certainty they have that you know, if they come and put in 100, 200, 300 million dollars, that you know, the, they will be able to see a return on that investment. So, that kind of regulatory certainty is actually critical if we want to get more of these projects off the ground on the continent. Eva Kuhn, people have assumed that there just isn't enough money. That's why there is this infrastructure gap of financing. But one of the things that's really happened over the last several years is that people are now saying, yes, there's money. The issue is there aren't bankable projects. You know, bankable projects means that it's a project that's either profitable enough uh, to merit investment or that a bank will get involved, that you can attract funding for it. So I'm wondering from a bank perspective, what makes a project bankable and how do you get more in the pipeline? If you look at the world right now, there's probably what, maybe about 17 um, trillion or so uh, dollars hanging around the world receiving negative return. You know, meanwhile, what does Africa require in terms of a gap for its infrastructure development? Why isn't the money? And there's technically on paper, higher return on investment on our continent. So some of those factors are the softer issues we've talked about. It's about making sure that the right skills within the continent, and we have the skills, we have the people doing the right things so that they can put it as it should be in order to attract the right kind of money. Two, you need to ensure that the cost makes sense because we also, I think we have the major issue of overpricing of projects and all the corruption part of it doesn't help as well. 
We have the inconsistency of government. It's the softer factors that are killing us in a number of, of cases. So we do need to look inwards and solve some of those problems because there's no way we're solving the problems on the continent until we commit to actually building the necessary infrastructure to support the growth that we require in order to accommodate the vision and the ambition of the population that we have. And we have an increasingly restless population because they're so young. If we don't solve the problem, it's a problem that's coming to roost at our doors. Look, you don't want to feed an African child that is hungry or to find clothes or use clothes to send to the continent for kids that have no clothes. When it's easier to support the continent to function effectively and to be successful so that every child on the continent is well-fed, every child is well-housed, and we can prosper and add value to the world. Alain, you've talked about how Africa is on a path, but that COVID has really made it, so you're accelerating that path. Well, yes, uh, I think the risk in Africa are exaggerated, honestly. Um, because there are risks, okay, we're not saying uh, this uh, zero risk, but the perception is higher than reality, which is one of the key challenges that we are in the process of solving by changing the narrative of Africa as a place where things are actually happening. I mean, the COVID situation, everybody predicted all kind of worst things that will happen in Africa. So far, so good. We will have a severe recession, negative impact. But at the same time, this is an opportunity to accelerate some trends that we want to see happening. For example, a significant mobilization of domestic and regional resources to fund African economies. We shouldn't have to rely as much on external sources of financing because guess what? As soon as there's a crisis, they fly back, they, they leave. So we need to figure out a way to mobilize more domestic resources. And one of the things that we are proposing at Africa 50 is asset recycling. Uh, to enable government, for example, to unlock some of the resources that are immobilized in some of the public sector assets that they finance and which are profitable, they can concession out those assets to the private sector. And institutional investors love this kind of asset. Many of us in Africa are saying, hey, we have to do stuff for ourselves. The perception of risk is always quite high for Africa. But investors in Africa always say it's really overblown, that it's perception, not reality on the ground. And in fact, when you look um, not at risk in terms of the entire continent, but country by country, you actually have individual countries that are equal to risk with parts of Europe. Why is there this gap between perception and reality? It's probably because of historical reasons where, of course, on the continent, we did stuff that we should not be doing. But you have today a trend of people doing the right thing. The trend line is not, uh, well, a straight line, but the direction is up. Let's make sure that 
Africa stops being a continent that only consumes technology, but one that creates technology. Africa could become the growth engine of the world because there's so much that will be done in Africa and everybody will come and participate and have an impact and make money. That was really amazing. Thank you all so much for being with us, for having this important conversation. Thank you so much to Ibukun Awasika, Achaleke, and to uh, Alain Ebobisi. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. This has been great. And thanks to my co-host, Carl Pino, for conducting that roundtable. That will do it for this episode and complete our Africa Forward series. I'm Aisha Sasei. Africa Forward is a podcast of Africa 50 produced by Carol Pino and FP Studios. Opinions and views in this podcast do not necessarily reflect that of Africa 50 or foreign policy. For more information on Africa 50, please check out Africa and then the numbers 50.com. And for more on FP Studios, you can head to foreignpolicy.com and click on podcasts. Thanks for listening.